You are listening to a sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee, the historic church of Robert Murray McShane. For more sermon content, please visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk. Now we're turning to Paul's letter to the Philippians, chapter 1. This, for those of you who may be visitors, is the third of an intermittent series of studies in Philippians that next month will become a permanent study in the evenings. And if you're using the church Bible, the passage is on page 1178. Then those of you who are regular know that 1178 isn't actually marked in the church Bible, but if you look for 1179, 1178 is the unmarked page before that. And we're going to read Philippians chapter 1 and verses 12 to 18. Paul is writing from prison to the Philippians, uh, who in some ways seem to have been his favorite congregation. He calls them his joy and crown in chapter 4, and they have been especially concerned about him. Now, he says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. Because of my chains, most of the brothers in the Lord have been encouraged to speak the Word of God more courageously and fearlessly. It is true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The latter do so in love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I am in chains." what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached, and because of this, I rejoice. I don't know if any of you ever belonged to a church family, or for that matter, some of you may even have belonged to a political group where there was at least one member, maybe more than one member, who punctuated his speech, it's usually a man, punctuated his speech with the word brother. How are you today, brother? It's a wonderful day, brother. Some of you may have been in political groups where they substituted the word comrade, but it's the same thing. Um, And in my lifetime, I've met a number of these dear Christians And eventually, you feel yourself saying, will you please stop calling me brother? It's like an A or an M to fill space. But when you think about it, the source of this may actually be the Apostle Paul. You may have to deal with an apostle if you start complaining about people who use the word brother too frequently. Of course, as our versions constantly remind us in little footnotes, when Paul uses the term brother, 
he usually, but not always, usually means brothers and sisters, dear friends, dear family members in Jesus Christ. And he uses the word brother just in 13 letters. He uses the word brother over 130 times. But there are some times when he uses it not as simply a way of describing his fellow Christians, but because his emotions are heightened. Now, in some families, if you have a shortened name, something really important happens, your full name will be spelled out. And when Paul's emotions are heightened, as they fairly regularly are in his letters, he will address those he's speaking to as brothers, dear brothers. Now, dear friends, this is what he does here. Dear friends, dear brothers, there is something you really need to know. It's an expression of his desire to draw them in to what he's saying. It's a kind of warning signal. What I want to say to you here is so important. You need to listen up and you need to grasp the principles that I'm about to enunciate. Paul is in prison, probably in Rome, although some New Testament scholars have thought he was in Caesarea, the imprisonment he experiences towards the end of the Acts of the Apostles, where he was in prison for a couple of years. And the Philippians have heard about his trouble and they have sent one of their own. They care for him. He's writing to thank them. They sent Epaphroditus. Epaphroditus uh, took so sick in the process of visiting Paul, Paul says he almost died. And with Epaphroditus, they sent a gift. Those of you who are familiar with Charles Dickens and the Marshalsea prison and uh, these ancient stories know the prison cell was free the food wasn't. And so it was in ancient Rome. If you were going to eat, then somebody needed to provide your sustenance. And so they've kindly sent Epaphroditus with some collection of money from Philippi, probably to Rome, in order to make sure that in his privation and difficulties, the Apostle Paul is going to be comfortable and they're concerned about him. And in a way, he's even more concerned about them than they are about him. But they know he is under pressure. Indeed, he uses a word in this passage that expresses the idea of being being hemmed in and pressed down. And there are two particular matters that are causing him distress. One of them, obviously, they know about. The other, possibly not. The first of them he mentions in verses 12 through 14. It's the obvious one, Paul's imprisonment. News in the Roman Empire, comparatively speaking, traveled fairly fast. They had heard, perhaps within days of Paul arriving in Rome and being imprisoned, uh, that he was under distress, that uh, there were people who were bad-mouthing him, that he was in difficulties. Um, And you can imagine how they felt. Uh, Today, the news would travel faster, but you can imagine the situation. Some very noted Christian, 
And you can imagine the, the tweets that would pass around our, our media culture. The Apostle Paul is in prison. And how do you use the rest of your, is it 142 characters? Wouldn't it be things like, Paul is in prison, what are we going to do now? Paul is in prison, what hope is there for the gospel in Rome now? And we are to imagine in this letter, there are, there are people we, we know from the Acts of the Apostles. Uh, there is Lydia, whom the Lord opened her heart when Paul went to Philippi. There's the, there's the jailer, there's that slave girl who was so, so abused by evil men, and they've come to faith in Christ. They owe their spiritual lives to Him. And here in Rome, it seems Paul has been silenced. The, the single most significant Christian, it would seem, in the Roman Empire has been sidelined. And I presume their response was not too different from what my response would be. If that's what happens to Paul, what hope is there for me? If that's what happens when someone sticks his head above the parapet and, as it were, has his head knocked off. I mean, think about the kind of things that happen in our own society. When Christians stand firm for Christian things and powers are unleashed in order to silence them. And the older you get, the more inclined you are to say, what's going to happen to the gospel in this world? How can the gospel survive in a world like this? And Paul is writing to them because he understands that's how we naturally think about our lives. And he understands that there is a common tactic that the enemy of the gospel always uses. First of all, it is intimidation, the effort to silence testimony to the gospel. And here Paul's testimony has been apparently stymied. And if that's happened to him, you know, what's the point in my bearing witness to Jesus Christ? And Paul is teaching these Philippians that such people, describable in terms of the psalmist words, God is not in their thoughts. Of course, God is not in their thoughts. Do not realize if God is not in their thoughts, that doesn't mean that God has become their prisoner. It doesn't mean that God has ceased to be active. And that invariably, of course, they, they can't think that way, so invariably, that's the thing they miss. That in the very activities in which they are engaging in order to destroy the gospel and silence testimony to the gospel can become the very things that God employs in His gracious purposes to advance the gospel. And that's precisely what he says. Notice his language. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has 
really reality. This is a reality check. It has really served to advance the gospel. And it's done so in in two ways, he mentions. It's done so because the fact that he is a prisoner because of his faith in the Lord Jesus Christ has begun to spread, he says, throughout the whole Praetorian Guard, or in the uh, English Standard Version, the whole Palace Guard. This is the crack Roman regiment, 9,000 elite Roman soldiers. These are the people who guard the emperor. These are like the Swiss guards in the Vatican. These are the, these are the seals in the United States. These, these are, uh, these are the, the top people. And there are only 9,000 of them in an empire that's run by the military. And they're on a four-hour watch, maybe one of them, maybe two of them. And hour after hour, they're, they're there to superintend the Apostle Paul. And word begins to spread throughout uh, these elite soldiers that there's something different, unusual about this prisoner. Why is he here? What has he done? He doesn't seem to be your rank-and-file criminal. And they hear him speaking about Christ. And word goes from mouth to mouth. These pagan elite Roman soldiers are mentioning the name of Jesus to one another, and the message of the gospel is spreading. Spreading so much that we know from the New Testament there were actually members of Caesar's household who had become Christians, and that this tribulation through which the apostle Paul is going has become an instrument in the Lord's hand to bring the gospel to the Praetorian Guard. It's a very simple principle, actually, if the Praetorian Guard won't come to hear the Apostle Paul, then God will engineer it so that the Apostle Paul will be… You you see how the Lord has overturned the situation? We're worried about Paul being a prisoner. The real prisoners here are the Praetorian Guard. But you see, if God is not in your thoughts, you're never going to think that way. And even if God is in your thoughts, as it was in the Philippians, He wants to teach them to think that way. He knows that we have this tendency to to look through the, the wrong end of the telescope and to see the obstacles to the gospel as big and not to see that God is so much bigger than the obstacles, that He works all things together according to the counsel of His own will. And if, let's say, Paul actually was in Caesarea when he was writing this, if you read from that point onwards until he sets sail for Rome and even afterwards, there is just an amazing litany of people who hear the gospel because Paul was a prisoner. So, that's one thing that he wants them to learn, that through the tribulations, the the oppression of this one Christian, and it's a principle, God's design is that the gospel will spread 
because everything we do, everything we experience, every opposition that faces us comes to us because we belong to Jesus Christ. And then he adds on, not only so, but he says, there's been another effect of this. The Christians around here, what they're telling me, the word on the street is that the Christians around here who were moping around thinking it's all done for because Paul is a prisoner. He's been silenced. We're all stymied. There's no point in witnessing. He says, not only is the gospel advancing, but the brothers have been encouraged. He says, this is just, this is just amazing. Because of my chains, most of the brothers in the Lord have been encouraged to speak the Word of God more courageously and fearlessly. Well, of course, because this is one of those situations where non-Christians have started speaking about the gospel. What is this gospel? Who is this Jesus Christ? What is this Apostle Paul? And it's emboldened them. You know, maybe they've been fearful. They've not been able to open up conversations. But when God works like this, conversations come. Remember what we learned in First Peter? That when God works, non-Christians are the ones who ask Christians questions because there's something heavenly, something alien about their lives. And so the brethren are encouraged to speak more and more about the Lord Jesus Christ. And you see, Paul has understood this that circumstances are never the master of God's purposes in our lives. They are always the servants. Sometimes, if you're like me, that's actually easier to grasp in the big things than it is in the small things, but it's true of all things. And there's another thing I think that's really interesting here and important for us to grasp that if Paul had sat in his affliction and turned into himself and said, God, why is this happening to me? He would never have been able to write this. It was because he understood that what was happening in his life was only incidental to God's purposes in him and much more relevant to God's purposes through him for the sake of others. You know, in some of our Christian lives, that takes, a, that takes a complete conversion of thinking because we are so focused on ourselves and even focused sometimes on, on getting God to explain why things are happening in our lives and not understanding that our lives are at His service and His disposal. And the really important thing is what He's doing through our lives in the lives of others. I remember as a young teenager being enormously helped by a chapter title in a book by a Chinese Christian man who was of kind of legendary status in the 1960s called Watchman Nee. Nods of heads from those who are over 60. Not everything Watchman Nee said was helpful, but there was one chapter title in a book called The Normal Christian Worker that was this, The Normal Christian Worker is Not Subjective. But you know what? I think it's even more true today. Most Christians are subjective, focused 
It, it's, it's in our atmosphere to focus on ourselves. Our bank encourages us to have me time. Our bank, a reputable bank. I think it used to be the bank that likes to make things disappear, but, and it did. And you see, you see the difference in this perspective that Paul has. He really has been converted. Sure, Martin Luther used to say, your chief problem is that you are incurvatus in se, that you're turned in on yourself. And you see the gospel has turned Paul out to to Jesus Christ and to what Jesus Christ is doing. And he has seen the way God uses tribulation, affliction, difficulty, opposition in order to bring others to faith. Where did, where did, where did Paul learn that? I think we've seen this before. He learned it from Stephen, the first martyr, whose marvelous life and gifts lay wasted at the feet of Saul of Tarsus. And yet, everything that you read about or from the Apostle Paul and those who were brought to faith through him is a result of the fact that Stephen understood that it wasn't all about him. It was about what Christ was doing in him and through him. So that's, that's his first tribulation. But the rest of the passage deals with a second tribulation that the Philippians may or may not have known about. Possibly had heard something about. Verse 15, it's true. What you've heard is saying is true. Now, what's the problem here? The problem here is not so much Paul's imprisonment. The problem here is fact, Paul's affliction because of others. And I think myself here that he's actually, he's speaking about preachers here, interestingly. In the first part of the passage, when he speaks about those who are, who are spreading the gospel, he just uses the ordinary word for speaking. So, these are ordinary Christians speaking the gospel to, to, to others. But almost out of the blue now, he starts using the New Testament's word for proclamation, heralding, preaching. And this very strange situation that forms the second part of his tribulation is that among the preachers, it's one of the reasons I think he's probably in Rome, where there were quite a number of churches and therefore many preachers. He says, I thank God that, that, that this has provided an opportunity, and, and some of the preachers are, are preaching the message of Jesus Christ, and they, they are doing it and inwardly saying, thank God for the way he's used the Apostle Paul, whom we love so much. But then you notice he speaks about others. Very strange words to our ears. He says, there are some who preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I am in chains. Now, 
to be honest, I'd rather pass over all this because I do think it is about preachers. I'm one of them. And there are others sitting in the congregation. But he's, what's he saying? Well, who were these preachers? Clearly, they are not the people that he refers to later on in chapter 3, verse 2, when he says, watch out for those dogs, those men who do evil, those mutilators of the flesh, and those he describes later on as enemies of the cross of Christ. Uh, in Galatians 1, he says, listen, if an angel from heaven comes and preaches a different gospel, let him be anathema. Now, these people are not preaching a different gospel. They're, they're preaching Christ. The problem, in a sense, is not so much with the message that they are preaching, but with the motives that, that lie behind it. Remember, a very famous uh, figure in English evangelicalism in the, in the late 20th century, Ernest Kevin, who was the first principal of the, the London Bible College, saying, there are two sins to which ministers often fall foul. The first is laziness. Six days invisible, one day incomprehensible. And the other is jealousy. Jealousy of other preachers. And this is, this is what seems to have gripped some of these people in, in Rome, I presume, they preach Christ not sincerely, not with, not with clean hearts towards the Apostle Paul, but out of selfish ambition, supposing they can stir up trouble for me while I am in chains. Who are these people? If you read the end of Romans, you, you'll learn that there were, there were several churches in Rome, and not only were there several churches, but there were there were kind of positions in those churches that were opposed to each other. And in his letter to the Romans, Paul had tried to resolve some of those issues. So, you know, you need to welcome each other. Don't bring these differences that you have into the center so that you say, if you don't agree with me on this, we're not going to have fellowship. And he tried so much to help. He'd given them God's Word. And he had actually called some of them weak brothers. And I think they're the ones who are behind this. How dare he? How dare he say of us who are strong Christians with strong consciences, they, they, they were very rigorous in the way they approached their observance of days and their diets. Very rigorous. They, they, they disputed with those who were prepared to have a bacon sandwich. And uh, I think now is their opportunity. He's in prison. We can seize back position. If you're not a Christian, then it's kind of embarrassing for someone like me to say this kind of thing happens in church, but this kind of thing happens in church. And it was happening in this church. What was Paul's reaction? This is really important for us, and importance, the right word. Do you notice it in the uh, New International Version? He says, now listen, the really important thing. 
is Christ. And Paul, by his example here, is, is teaching us some really helpful lessons. And, and I think they go like this. Do you know how some of us some of us look at the church and say, you know, as long as that church is like that, then I can't, whatever it is. As long as, as, long as that church is like that, I, I can never rejoice when, when that church, or as long as, as long as he or she is like that or doing that to me, then, you know, I can't really flourish. I can't really be joyful. And you notice Paul's reaction to that. He won't let the failures and even the sins of others, even in the church, divert him from his chief aim, which is to see Jesus Christ exalted. And if Jesus Christ is exalted, when there are hearts that are not sympathetic to him, that wouldn't want to call him dear brother Paul, then that's incidental. That's not really important. And to let that be really important blinds me to Jesus Christ, who is really important. Or to say, well, I can't really be a joyful Christian as long as that's going on. Do you mean that's the source of your joy in Christ? No, he says, the source of my joy in Christ is Christ Himself. And you see small things brought near to the eye blind us to the things that are really big. Unimportant things brought near to the eye. What's in your pocket? Tuppence. Brought near to the eye. That little tuppence could blind me to a whole congregation. And you wouldn't be worth tuppence. And that's what he's saying. He's saying, don't, don't allow yourself to be diverted from what is really important, what really matters, and that is that Christ is made known, and that Christ Jesus is the source of your joy. And he has this marvelous sense of proportion, because Christ is the center of his vision. And when Christ is the center of your vision, it also gives you a kind of measure of detachment from all the things that might irritate you. Some of you, like me, were taught as a youngster to sing, turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in His wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of His glory and grace. But we could add another verse, couldn't we? Turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in His wonderful face. And some of the irritations in the church will grow dim in the light of His glory and grace. And perhaps you're not a Christian at all. Perhaps you're here with a friend. Not much knowledge of what this is all about. And what do you hear about on a nice autumnal Sunday morning in Dundee is, you know, the stuff that there is in the church. Well, you would have made the same mistake, wouldn't you? You would have allowed a small thing, the fact that the church isn't perfect, the fact that you know Christians who aren't perfect, 
he would have allowed that small thing, relatively incidental in the big picture when you get to know many more Christians, to blind you to what is really important and what is really important, what really brings the joy of the Lord that is both our strength and the author of our forgiveness, is that our eyes are fixed entirely on Him, and that we see everything revolving around Him, and not the other way around. That's what it means to want us to know how the gospel advances. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your Word to us. Thank You for the amazing stories that lie behind the pages of letters like this letter of Paul to the Philippians. And we see a little of their significance for us in a world where our Lord Jesus Christ is also demeaned on the one hand and often, alas, by the church and within the church spoken of out of false motives. Deliver us, we pray, from all false motives. Fix our eyes upon the Lord Jesus. Fill us with a desire in these coming days of this week to see all things in Him and through Him, and to know that through us and all the circumstances of our lives, you will advance the gospel and bring glory to his name and increase our joy in the Lord. We pray this with the forgiveness of our sins and failures. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee. If you found this sermon has been helpful to you, please help us to continue building up and assisting the people of God. Visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk For information and training on persuasive evangelism and how to share your faith biblically, please visit the website of SOLAS, the Centre for Public Christianity, at solas-cpc.org. Once again, that website address is solas-cpc.org. Thanks for listening.